0: Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with philanthropist and CEO of BOMA, John Stevens. We find out more about John's career, his experience both as a philanthropist and as a charity leader and what's led him to lead an organisation that follows the graduation approach to development. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work For Good. Work For Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good through their fundraising platform. They offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Without further ado, here is John Stevens speaking with me about the graduation approach to development. Delighted to be joined by John Stevens, CEO of Boma. John, welcome to Charity Chats.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So maybe if we can start, as we tend to do these days, by asking you a little bit about you. So what what's led you to become CEO of Boma, and what does your day to day look like?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, You know, I kind of joined the international relief and development world in about 2000, and I. Um, Cut my teeth at Mercy Corps as an aid worker, uh, and then did development work there as well for about 15 years. And, you know, I think uh, at some point just wanted to uh, engage at a different level in philanthropy and development with what were emerging, you know, some of these great new organizations like One Acre Fund, just kind of smaller organizations with singular ideas, really transformational models and lots of evidence. Um, And as part of that process, I uh, left Mercy Corps and I went to a foundation and was running that foundation for a couple of years and really kind of looking for these organizations and starting to fund them and to shift that portfolio uh, towards these kind of really cool new emerging organizations. And through that process, uh, I was introduced to the graduation approach. And the graduation approach is, you know, this really interesting model that came out of BRAC. Um, about 15, 20 years ago in their work with microfinance. Um, but essentially, you know, it was this kind of uh, 24 to 36 month intervention to take an extremely poor household and bring them out of that very kind of vicious cycle type poverty that we see and get them on a pathway to prosperity. And what was unique is that, you know, they had a lot of evidence within that model. They um, just had a very clear picture of what they were trying to accomplish. And they had enormous success rates, you know, 90, 95%. So I started funding some of these groups, BOMA was one of them. Um, And I was out in Kenya quite a bit. So I got a chance to go up and look at the organization and just really admired their work and their dedication to evidence and evidence building and collecting data. And that whole, you know, we do that across the board in development work, we collect information, but uh, some organizations just really um, know kind of the right questions to ask and how to bring the impact and outcomes they're trying to deliver into the light with great evidence. And Boma was doing that, uh, so I joined our board of directors. And maybe I could say I finagled my way onto the board of directors um, because I really wanted to learn, like what is it about this organization are really able to harness data and drive programming. Uh, and after about a year on the board. You know, the founder was stepping out. She asked if I would like to step in and lead the organization. And um, I was quite comfortable, I would say, in the donor world a couple of years in. Um, but it was a great opportunity. You know, I just, again, I really admired and respected BOMA and what they were doing and thought I could add to their future and help build the organization and scale these uh, programs. So I, I joined the organization as CEO, and I've been there now for about four years.
0: Oh, wow. So am I right that so you started out as a donor, as a supporter of the work, financial right. supporter of the work, right?
1: Yeah. And then, then you became a board member. Then you
0: became a board member. Is that I mean, we funnily enough, we've talked about that fairly recently. Is that kind of is there an expectation um in in the states that board members are also contributing funding to those to the to the work? Or is that is that broadly true, do you know, or I think it's broadly
1: true. Right. I think uh, in the U S many boards are considered fundraising boards and are harnessed right. as such. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've made a shift recently away from that because we wanted to create a very strategic governance board and are kind of putting the fundraising efforts within the staff. And that also looking at kind of a side uh, board of uh, ambassadors, so to speak that, that mm-hmm. are fundraisers, but not part of the governance structure. Um, so there are some, uh organizations that are moving away from that but in general yeah that that's typically an expectation especially with small and mid-sized nonprofits
0: and what what about the the um the work of development um encouraged you to give to that I mean, was it have you given to lots of different causes in your, in your past or have you been focused on development yourself for any particular reasons
1: you know, I think I've mostly been focused on uh, development. Um, you know, I think um, you know just early on uh, doing work in relief work. You know, going out uh, for the tsunami, going out for different earthquakes in Asia, and doing that relief work and seeing, you know, really looking at um, the deficit. I, I think you might say in those communities that were not able to prepare for natural disasters you know, and how critical development was. And we talk about it more specifically sometimes as disaster risk reduction, but more broadly, you know, an earthquake hits Tokyo and, and they can provide everything they need. An earthquake hits uh, Islamabad or, or some other place that doesn't have those resources and there's a devastating human impact. Um, so, you know, really seeing the need for development as as part of the answer to how we think about responding to disasters. And now I think, you know, taking that a step further and saying it's all about climate, you know, and that this is the big disaster that's looming, and development isn't anywhere near addressing kind of the issues around resilience that's required to help people adapt and cope with this.
0: the work that you've been doing in development and going out to actually going to places around the world where these disasters are happening and having done so for best part of two decades i guess Mm -hmm. how does that make you feel about your life when you're back home i mean has that do you think that frames how you kind of think about what you have and your relationships with your family and all these different things does it does it do that for you it it
1: certainly does in terms of you know just coming home uh and and enjoying kind of the simple luxury of turning on the tap and drinking right. water straight from the tap right and yeah, understanding yeah. um you know what does it take in terms of development um to to get to that point mm-hmm. you know and um you know i think one of the the interesting things is is that in many parts of what we call the developed world we've we've also kind of lost track or forgotten about And how we got to this point, you know, these simple luxuries Mm -hmm. that we enjoy, um, those are kind of hard fought luxuries, right? That took years and years um, of people working towards those goals. Um, But I, you know, I look at the work we do uh, in Kenya and East Africa and, um, you know, I'm not trying to recreate kind of the American experience, but I think there's something there around helping people achieve Mm self-reliance, you know, it's a critical piece their journey uh, towards resilience. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, there's also an interaction here, of course, at the government level where, you know, US and UK governments are spending billions around the world supporting people. And, and how do we do that in the most efficient way that, that preserves dignity, that pursues prosperity, and that really, you know, we say like, we're here to fix a problem. You know, we don't want to be uh, you know supporting food shipments to the entire world every year we let's fix this problem let's look at this development as as kind of a a mutual endeavor for for everyone's success and benefit and let's get there
0: And when you're looking at and I suppose the same, might be uh, said for a lot of different causes. And I'm sure the, the listeners of this podcast probably have these kind of feelings of, you know, seeing the scale of the problems or challenges that they're, um, whatever charity they're working for is trying to tackle. Right. Sometimes right. that can seem overwhelming. What What is it, do you think, for you that you can, that really kind of keeps you motivated and keeps you engaged in the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I I do think... Uh, one of the kind of factors of burnout in aid work and development mm-hmm. work is this, this kind of feeling that we're working on an impossible task sure. that, that we'll never get there, we'll never solve these problems. Uh, and so I think the first step is is kind of reframing and really saying, you know, like, for example, I I, I did this a couple of weeks ago. I said, well, if we're looking to uh, solve for extreme poverty in Africa, how many mm. people live in extreme poverty? What's the cost of our program? Multiply that and just come up with a number. That number may be astronomical. Right. It may strike you as astronomical. Yeah. But until you do that, you're just working in this kind of uh, infinite horizon, sure. right? So you, even just calling it out for me, I said, it's 35 billion US dollars to fix wow. extreme poverty, to solve for that. Yeah. Now, that seems astronomical until you realize that the U.S. just sent $40 billion to Ukraine. And, right. and rightfully, I'm not yeah, disagreeing yeah, yeah. with that. Sure, but
0: sure.
1: Uh, it, it tells you that we, uh, just in the United States, could fund and end extreme poverty with the snap of a finger. Um, and so, you know, if you say to yourself, well, um, we have the funding, You know, we have the programs to do it. We have the people. We're really just missing kind of the prioritization within Mm. government. But Mm. all of this to say, let's focus on a real solution as big or crazy as that number may seem. And I think that starts to move away from this is an endless problem that will never be solved to this is a problem we can solve. Here's the number and start Mm -hmm. talking about it. Just honestly tell people, I need $35 billion. It's shocking to them at first, but I think it helps everyone involved in that conversation really see the end, right? This is what it takes.
0: How do you go about ensuring that your efforts in an area aren't duplicating other efforts
1: a couple things there you know first of all um we're always on the lookout for other people working in these areas to make sure that's not happening and one of the ways we do that most effectively is that you know when you look at our uh, 350 staff vast majority of those folks are living uh, and working in those communities where we're implementing programs so mm-hmm. you know their feet on the ground uh, they have visibility to all the other actors that are up there um And for the most part, the reason why we are in these communities is because there's no one else working there, you know, so they're uh, especially, you know, when you work out in very remote rural locations, it's easy Mm -hmm. to tell when there are other actors out there. Uh, But in terms of duplication, you know, we actually are inviting groups in to duplicate what we do. A big part of our strategy pathways to scale are you know essentially giving our program model to other big NGOs and to governments training them how to implement it so ironically we're also trying to get Groups to come in and duplicate what we do so we can step back and move to new areas. Right Right now in Kenya, you know, we're working with a number of different big NGOs as well as the government of Kenya, training them how to implement our program. Just Mm -hmm. for that very reason, we'd love to hand this over to the government of Kenya and watch them use tax revenues to improve the lives of their citizens.
0: I had a conversation a little while ago with a lady called Sarah Brook, who's the CEO of um, a charity working in Malawi called the Starlight mm-hmm. Foundation, I think. And um, and Sarah, one of the things Sarah was talking about was kind of the holistic approach that they take to um, working with people in the communities that they're working with. Is that does that resonate with you? Is that kind of part of of how Boma operates as well?
1: Uh, you know, I'd kind of say no to that. In that we. You know what we define as our mission is to bring people out of extreme poverty, and and to really stay clearly focused on that one, that one kind of event and that threshold moment where we're pushing yeah, exactly. people out of that very dangerous kind of uh, poverty. Mm-hmm. You know, very we're very kind of clear that even though there's plenty of opportunities to move into other areas or kind of surround uh, our program with all sorts of other interventions. Uh, you know, all of that would start to really reduce our pathway to scale, you know, so by by design, you know, when we graduate a participant, we're done, you know, we have to be very clear about that from the very beginning that we're not, you know, opening then up to all sorts of new programs. Um, But, you know, we do invite other organizations into the places where we're working and to, to work with participants, whether it be water or ongoing livelihood. Um, or sort of small business development programs. We invite all of that in. Certainly, you know any place where we're going to be working is is very resource deprived, um, and and any other kind of contributions are going to be helpful.
0: What are the social and economic benefits of your work for the impoverished communities that you work with?
1: Well, you know, right off the bat, so the program is effectively a livelihoods program. So we are training women uh, how to start a business, giving them a grant to start that business up and then teaching them how to start a savings uh, account through a savings group. Uh, So really the benefit is economic independence and self-reliance If they've got an income stream they've got a savings account, they have the building blocks, of resilience, and they mm-hmm. can start to feed their families, put their kids into school. We especially promote getting girls into school. Um, so the benefit really is, is that. Um, mm-hmm. But what we also see, what we don't necessarily measure, you know, through our kind of m and and data, uh, is the transformation, that psychological transformation, which I think is also critical that you know, these are people that have been mostly marginalized mm-hmm. and no one's invested in them until BOMA comes along. And there's a psychological transformation that happens at the, at some point in the program where they realize they're capable. You know, they're, yeah. they're entrepreneurs, they're mavericks, they're business people. Uh, and that, I think, is something that will sustain, you know, this work mm-hmm. for years and years is not just what we've trained them, but their ability to to kind of keep moving forward and to uh, work through challenges and to keep growing their businesses.
0: And have you seen over the the course of the pandemic for example and now with the um the challenges certainly here in the UK and I think all around the world we're we're seeing a kind of challenge to um certainly the the funds that people have available to give to causes and mm-hmm. and cost of living crisis and things like that. Have you seen over the last few years an impact on the Um, kind of support you've been able to get for BOMA and also the kind of understanding of why supporting communities in far off countries in some cases is is still relevant to donors
1: yeah it's interesting so I think we could say you know there's kind of been the COVID the pandemic phase and its impact on philanthropy and programming and Mm -hmm. then there's now this kind of Ukraine phase which is very distinctly different so you know, during the pandemic, I think, uh, at least in the United States, we really saw a strengthening of giving, mm-hmm. uh, even though I think a lot of people were experiencing some hardships themselves. Um, you know, a lot of charities put out that call that now is not the time to stop giving. It's, it's more critical than ever. Yeah. Um, and foundations also, uh, you know, we heard that call within them that uh, they were sometimes doubling their support of organizations mm-hmm. realizing what they were going through. Um, now we get into this next phase with Ukraine and spikes in food and fuel prices uh, combined with the drought in East Africa. Um, I think, you know, there's a couple things happening that I'm keeping an eye out. One is that a lot of uh, aid funding is going to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And again, the need is true and it's real, um, but not to the deficit of other parts of the world that are um, really, really struggling. And I think what we're seeing right now in East Africa with the drought, with food insecurity, um, it, it's really critical. You know, There's reports coming out of Somalia that there are a million people on the move all of a mm. sudden uh, and that deaths are, are spiking. Um, it's really critical that I think uh, governments like the US and UK not lose focus on these places and their their commitments uh, to helping those people live.
0: I'm an eternal optimist, um, and and I suppose maybe that that kind of frames what I'm about to say. But I wonder whether whether there is kind of at least the hope that as we all struggle, as we did in the, the pandemic, and certainly I think there are examples here in the UK, probably around the world, where people really dug deep into their pockets um, to support here the National Health Service and other charities that were really trying to fight COVID, despite the fact that in a lot of cases, people had less money because of being furloughed from work and things mm-hmm. like that. So I guess I hope that... Um, empathy for those in in great need will come from everyone being in greater need, um, even though it might not be quite kind of relative. Do you share that same hope? I I share the hope.
1: Uh, I think we are seeing events, you know, the pandemic and climate change are are two events that, you know, whether you're rich or not, you you can't escape. Mm. Uh, And so I think we are in some circles developing a greater consensus that you know climate change is a global problem everyone's going to suffer from this mm. um and and so we need a combined uh, response to that i think the pandemic was similar right it you can't isolate your country you can't say not us no we're not going to engage mm. um so i think these events i hope are are starting to Uh, change the way we think about funding as opposed to saying, you know, country X has their problems. We don't care about those to saying we're all kind of on the same boat here. You know, your side of the boats leaking. I don't care. You know, that, that doesn't work. Um, But I still think there's kind of, I would say two things, a lack of of funding to address the scale of the issues, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're still giving um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to problems that require billions. Um, and so there's, there's a part there that needs to change. Um, and then I think just the prioritization, you know, are we going to prioritize climate change? Are we going to prioritize extreme poverty, Mm -hmm. um, and, and solve for these things in our lifetime. And I think that's still uh, a lot of work to do. I think we see in the U S we're just barely, barely able to get a climate bill passed. You know, and it's it's not everything that's needed. So um, lots of work to do for sure.
0: And I guess my final question, John, really is in your hope for the future, how would you see states, nonprofits and individuals operating to support impoverished communities?
1: Well, you know, I, I look at nonprofits, um, you know, I think we're catalysts uh, that we, we provide catalytic change. We are not the ultimate providers of this, these big changes. So, mm. you know, when I look at BOMA, I think well, BOMA has this phenomenal model and we can share that with governments. Um, ultimately, I think governments need to step in mm. and really provide that big muscle to uh, address extreme poverty at scale. Um, But but beyond that, then I think um, to some extent, markets can be tapped to do a lot of this work. You know, effectively what we're doing is helping people start jobs. Uh, We're very good at going out to very low resource areas where the economy is extremely thin and helping people create uh, a viable livelihood that Mm. supports them and their families. Um, And then ultimately it's the markets that should be sustaining uh, these efforts. Um, so I think we need to always reframe uh, charitable work and philanthropy and saying we're here to do a piece of this. We're not here to, to do the work of markets. We're not here to do the work of government. So what is it then that we're really good at? What What's the gap we're addressing and how do we stay focused on that and ensure that these other uh, pieces, whether it's the markets or government, are coming in and fulfilling their roles as well?
0: John Stevens, thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. Yeah, thank you. A big thank you there to John Stevens for sharing his insights and expertise with us here on Charity Chat. Bringing people out of extreme poverty and keeping this as the focus of the mission is BOMA's approach. John was very clear that economic independence and self-reliance is the aim and that BOMA is seeking to support as many people as possible in this first step. While some charities will seek to support a given group as holistically as possible, others will seek to support as many people as possible and every charity has got to consider how thin they can spread their projects and their resource. When it comes to helping people to achieve self-reliance, there needs to be a level of equality between the charity and the beneficiary. Mutual respect, starting with a good knowledge of the challenge and a collaborative approach to solving them, makes for a solid foundation. Of course, there are different views on how to solve the challenges that communities and individuals face. Looking at development as a mutual endeavour for everyone's success sounds like a good start to me. The scope of the challenges that we see Across the world, often vast, and while many of us may be aligned with an organization or two seeking to tackle as a part of a problem or a challenge, none of us can say that our organization alone has the antidote. John said that charities provide catalytic change, but governments need to step in and provide solutions at scale. John also made the point that until we map out the problem and the cost of the solution, we can't put things into perspective. And rather than leading supporters to despondency, quantifying the size of the problem and size of the solution can lead to clarity of purpose and galvanize support. We need to move away from seeing an endless problem that will never be solved and instead give them or give that problem a number, a figure, a target to aim for. John made the point that aid is being channeled to support those affected by the war in Ukraine, but possibly at the detriment of other needs. We have to hope that funders do the due diligence to recognise the wider need of peoples across the world and channel their giving into the work of those who are proven to be making a difference, more than this, we need to find ways to raise the profile of other needs and growing the pot to support all of them rather than accepting that some causes will gain at the expense of others. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good through their fundraising platform. They offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact charities through their sales to find out more please visit workforgood.co.uk giant squid audio lab for sponsoring our podcast kit magta for our beautiful website check it out at charitychat.org.uk. and of course forrester falls for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now that's it from me keep on doing what you can speak to you soon cheerio bye-bye